Amen. All right, good morning, everybody. All right, so uh, we're continuing in 1 Timothy, and uh, we're getting to really the, the heart of the book. Uh, it's the center of the book uh, and the, kind of the theological center of the book as well. And so as we get to this point, uh, a letter written to local churches for local churches, uh, there's a simple question I want to ask as we read our Bibles, as we go through First Timothy, as you sit here this morning, which I don't think many people consider. What is the purpose of the church? What is the purpose of the church? Why is the building here? Why do we come together? And when I say that, I don't mean this church. I mean the church universal. And by extension, if we're talking about the church universal, the true church of God in every place, in every nation throughout time, we are by extension speaking about the church universal or the church local, individual churches. Because a lot of people, I think, in a lot of churches think that their purpose is different than other churches, or that they have some kind of special calling or something is distinct about them that makes them different or that they have more to do or less to do than what Christ has called all of the church to do. So it's an important question when we think about what is the purpose of the church. I talk to many people and I get, um, I read between the lines when they talk about church. When they talk about, I grew up in this church, or I went here, or I liked the music, or I didn't like the preaching, or I like that I had to dress up, or I don't like that they, that they dress up. So, how do you view the church? What is the, the purpose of church for you? Comfort? Tradition? I like that they've always done these things. I've always done these things. Social club? And this is the only place where people like me and welcome me, you know, um, Charity, I like to do good things and be done, you know, good, good deeds. Uh, outreach, um, I've been a part of churches where outreach was the purpose of the church. Our whole goal is just to bring more people in and do more things. Classroom, I've also been to these churches where it's just information from, from one to another. Okay, I'm here to learn good stuff and then go home, and that's all the churches. Is it those things? Is there a combination of those things? Because what I want to lay out this morning is your ecclesiology, your view of who the church is and what it is, and your philosophy, why you do what you do and how you do what you do, is going to define your church. What the church is and what the church is, who the church is, why you do it, and how you do it, is going to direct the focus of your ministry. There's a myriad of answers but how you answer this question will direct what you do, what you teach, because of why you do it and why you teach it. So, last week I mentioned the agreement between orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Your right doctrine and your right practice. Having truth that you hold to, which leads to godly action out of that truth. And... Um, this morning, that's what we're going to look at, our conduct and our confession, our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy. Uh, reverse those. Our conduct is our orthopraxy. Our, con our, our confession is our orthodoxy. And so coming in in, in chapter 3, we dealt with 
elders two weeks ago and deacons last week. So the stewardship of the officers is to promote order in the church, is to manage well the household of God. And that comes out of and is founded on the doctrines that they hold to. And they are to set an example for the members in doctrine and in practice. And so uh, I think John Stott is helpful here in this uh, brief quote of how the, the flow of chapter 3 comes together. Because I think often we can read this, okay, this one's about elders, and has nothing to do with deacons, and, there's nothing, and I don't even know why verses 14 to 16 are in there, but they sound really good. Um, but there's, there's a thought process here. So that John Stott quote will be up on the screen. He says, uh, Paul's perspective in this chapter is to view the presbyters, the elders, and the deacons in the light of the church they are called to serve, and to view the church in light of the truth that it is called to confess. And so there, there is a uh, domino progression here going on in the passage. Uh, and we are only dealing with three verses, but sometimes, uh, somehow I'd never have enough time. So we're going to jump right into 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 to 16. Paul, again, writing to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in glory, or excuse, in the world, and taken up in glory. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you this morning, uh, coming off a, hopefully, a remembrance of all the things that we are thankful for. We are people of hearts of thanksgiving and not just thankful for full bellies, Um, but also that we are thankful people all throughout the year because we, of all people, have so much to be grateful for. You are a God who redeems, a God who saves, a God whose mercy is more than all of our sins, a God who took on flesh and was heralded by the angels, a God who dwelled among us, Emmanuel, a God who dwells in us, Spirit, and a God who is preparing a place for us in glory. Oh, how much we have to be thankful and grateful for just in our salvation. We could spend the rest of our days and the rest of our years on this earth marveling at the God who saves sinners and that you would save us. And I also praise you this morning for anyone here who does not know you, that you brought them here this morning that they may sit under your word, that may hear your praises sung, And I petition on their behalf, Lord. Convict them of their sin. Bring them to new life. Revive their heart that they may put their trust in you, that they may live in life everlasting, and that we might rejoice when a sinner has repented and is reconciled to the Lord. That is why we're here. Our God reconciles sinners of whom we are chief. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's jump right in. Verse 14 and 15 
Uh, as we said kind of early on, this is Paul's purpose for the entire letter. Paul's telling them, he doesn't often do this, you know, we don't always get the purpose for the letters, we kind of have to read between the lines. Here the purpose is, is clear. I hope to come to you soon. Paul's a guy who's going to put his money where his mouth is. I've got some things to tell you, and I'm not just going to say it from a distance. I, hopefully, I can be there in person. But if I'm not coming soon, there's some things that are out of order. There's some things you need to be reminded of. And even if I don't come soon, these you must handle soon. And these don't, don't forget. This is what your church needs to know until I get there. Even if I delay, don't delay in doing this. And so he addresses conduct first. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things. What are the these things? These things are the entire letter. Everything I am writing to you, why? So that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. There's a lot of conduct in this book. You know, typically Paul's letters are the, the first half are indicative and the second half are imperative. And it's, it's sort of like that. We, we get a lot of foundational truths about the, um, the gospel and men and women and elders and deacons. But there's a lot of uh, direction and a lot of practical behavioral counsel all throughout the book. It's a very practical book. And the second half of the book, uh, beginning in chapter 4, verses, or chapters 4 and 5, are going to be highly imperative. So a lot about conduct, a lot about practice, and this kind of bridges the gap. This is the seam between the two. And so why does Paul care how the church behaves? Because they could just have the right doctrine. They could put their, their, their faith in Christ and do whatever they want. Paul cares because this is Christ's church. Because she belongs to God, and he's zealous for her, and he's jealous for her. He told the Corinthian church, I betrothed you to one husband, and now you've gone after others. Paul is zealous because he serves a zealous God, a jealous God. And so in the church, who we are reflects what we do. There, this is a lot about identity, and so that's what we're going to look at in these, these first two verses. Our identity informs our behavior. And our behavior reflects our Savior. Our identity informs our behavior, and our behavior reflects our Savior. These things are not disconnected. Who we are will lead to what we do. A good tree will bear good fruit. And if it does, people will see its fruit and say they must have had a good creator. Someone made them. So we want to glorify God in our actions because we are grateful for what he's done in us. And so the first three chapters are more ecclesiology. So uh, what the church is, who the church is, what it should be doing. And then the latter half, verses, or chapters 4 and 5, are more pastoral theology. Uh, writing to Timothy what to do in particular situations. Here are things that are going to kind of give you a litmus test for what the health of the church is. So you build the foundation with your ecclesiology, and then it's worked out in its pastoral theology. And so some of the things we're going to see over the next couple chapters. Avoid controversies. Hold the sound doctrine. Have loving conduct with one another. Care for the needy. Correct error. Be content. Be thankful for good leaders. Avoid temptation. Guard the deposit that is entrusted to you. 
It's going to be very practical over uh, the next couple chapters and over the next many weeks. But what I want you to see here as we go through this, Paul is writing to a particular church and a particular people with particular issues. But since there is one Lord, there is one faith, there is one baptism, what is good for the church in Ephesus is good for all churches in all times. And this is why the Holy Spirit has preserved this book for us. Because as we continue on, we are the household of God. And we need to know how to behave. We need to know what to believe. And so, as I mentioned in the introduction, as he gets into the household of God, this connects the elders and deacons. This word, if you're used to, as we are here, looking at repeated words, the theme continues. These are not disconnected. Because what do we see in verse 4? If you're to be an elder... He must manage his own household, same word, well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's household, God's church? Deacons, likewise, verse 12, let deacon each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. You see the connection here? If you are God's household, You need men who can govern their own households well because they're going to be entrusted with gods. And so the implications are natural. Uh, So I want to kind of, uh, this this analogy of a a house, God uses often throughout scriptures. Um, This idea of God dwelling with people. It began in the garden. Uh, There was a tabernacle in the wilderness There was a temple in Jerusalem. John 4 says, now I have people who worship in spirit and truth. There's still a house, but they can worship anywhere. This this analogy is built on so many places. I want to look at just a couple passages. Uh, Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 3. So if you're not familiar with your Bible, uh, just go a couple books to the right. Hebrews chapter 3. When we talk about this house, we have to understand what it is and whose it is. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Uh, That's going to come up later. The word confession, by the way, means same words. When we use a word like confession, that means we say the same words, meaning the same things. We are in agreement. Who was faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in God's house. Now watch how this analogy plays out. There was a house even back then, and Moses was faithful in it. For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Even the house that Moses was building in Israel, Christ is the builder. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. He is God incarnate. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Moses' whole job is to be faithful in God's house for a time, but looking forward. There's a prophet who's going to come after me. Listen to him. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Now this is different. A son has ownership. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting as is in our hope. 
Notice the connection. What Moses began, God was building. Christ as son, the first son among many brothers, as he says just a few verses before. And now we also in him are this house as sons. And so here, first of all, when we look at God's household, this is where our doctrine of adoption helps us in our identity. If we're a household, what does that look like? We have one father. We have one Lord, Jesus Christ, who's also our brother who went before us. There is one spirit who saved us and and sanctified us according to the image of his son. And so we, when we come to new life, when when we're born again, we're born as babes, crying out, Abba, Father, speaking in a tongue to our Father for the first time, even as adults. And we're brought into a spiritual house and a spiritual family where we have fellowship with one another. We have equality with one another because we are all one in Christ. And so this household, it is, it is familial. Everything that makes a God-honoring household, father, son, children, wife, and everything that honors God is what makes up God's household and the church, all of these these things. Even the Apostle Paul speaks of himself as a father and a mother as he cares for churches. Um, And so our fellowship with one another flows out of that. It's interesting, as I was growing up, I always thought it was weird when people would say brother or or sister. It just sounds strange to me. It sounds like ultra spiritual until I've actually experienced it, until I actually experienced what it's like to have true brothers in Christ where men can hug each other and say, I love you and I'm praying for you and I care for you. And women can truly be sisters in Christ. And then it's, it's, it's sweet and our fellowship comes out of our adoption. Um, and what I love about this church is you, you guys get this. You live this out. Let me give you two examples. Um, I got reports from two couples this week who are newer to the church and express just by being here and just by watching your example, by observing you, you have, you have made an impact on their marriage and their faith. You know how encouraging as a pastor that is to hear? That just by being here, and watch the way that, that husbands love their, their wives and that children respect their, their parents and that, and that men can be men and can be loving. And women are free to be women who are, who are caring and supportive and, and hospitable and all these beautiful godly traits. And they say, this has impacted our marriage and our faith. Two couples this week. That is a beautiful picture of the church. Uh, A.W. Tozer has, a, has uh, a great analogy. I want to take his analogy and I want to take it a step further. He says that uh, if you have 100 pianos and you tune them all to the same tuning fork, they will all play in tune with one another. So once they are tuned to the source, then they will all play in the same key in the same way which is a beautiful picture of the church. We are, if we're all tuned to Christ, we will automatically be tuned to one another. That's what this household looks like. And that's, and that's great and it's true. And I want to take it a step further. But think about an orchestra. If you have all these different instruments, 
who are all playing in the same key. You have a symphony. And that is a better representation of the church. Because some are violins and some are, some are tubas and there's one guy in the back with the gong who just you know, hits, hits the big drum one time, but it all fits. And what a beautiful picture of the, tr- of the church where everyone comes with their instrument, everyone plays their, their part. You may never have a solo, but if we're all not playing the melody as it should be played, it's out of tune and something is off. But when it's all played, it's amazing. And they all blend together, and no one stands out among the others. There's one more picture here, this household idea that I think is helpful in Ephesians chapter 2. This also helps to build our identity. Ephesians is a great letter about the mystery of the gospel. In the first half, this mystery is that Jews and Gentiles can become one, and these Gentiles who had no inheritance with the people of Israel are now being addressed here in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That is why we place an emphasis on church membership. It is not just some empty ritual. It is our identity. We are members with the saints and with one another. We recognize one another. We covenant together. Because God took us from strangers and orphans to sons and citizens. And this household is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That is the connection between the behavior and the belief of the church That it is Christ, the cornerstone of our house, and that's why we're going to look at verse 16 in depth the way we will. In whom, in Christ, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Think about that. Not only are we a house, are we a family, but we are God's house. A dwelling place for God himself. That the God of the universe who created all things, who redeemed us, would send his son, who would send his spirit to dwell in us that we might be his house. And as every living stone, as Peter says, comes together, we become his temple. A place where he is pleased to be worshipped and approached. This is our identity as the church. Martin Luther, oh, I want to look at one more in Ephesians 4, before I get to Martin Luther. Um, Ephesians 4, chapter, verse 15, where Paul again says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are able, we are to grow up in every way into him, the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, so you got this body picture but also brought together in the building picture, joined and held together in, by every joint by which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This, this house is also a body. This is not some impersonal, um, impersonal thing. It's a living organism. It's a living body, a living household, and it is to be built up. 
to be built up into Christ. And there's a beautiful picture in the house. There's something as a means of grace where the Lord ministers to us here where he doesn't in our own homes. And I think Martin Luther captures this well. You know, the, the, the modern question is, but why can't I just worship at home? Why can't I just have Facebook or YouTube church this morning? No such thing. Luther hits this well. He says, in my own house, there's no warmth and vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. You here this morning, you here who are here week after week, month after month, and you come and you can't wait for Sunday. Why? It's something you can't explain. I can sing at home. I can read the Bible at home. I can preach to myself in the mirror. But when I hear you sing, when I pray with you, when I see you read the Bible and encourage one another, when I get to preach and I hear amen and I see smiles and I see people taking notes, we are together in this household. We are learning and growing together. And so I want you to think about it this morning. Is that why you came to church? Not just a building. Is that why you came to the assembly of the saints? Because this is where you are fed. This is where the fire of your heart is stoked. This is where your brothers and sisters fan the flame. This is where you find comfort in the gospel. Where nowhere else can do. That's why Paul wrote to churches. Jesus wrote to churches in Revelation. There are gatherings of bodies everywhere who come together, who have fanned this flame. And we come together to celebrate that we get to do this. Not that we have to, we get to. We get to come together in one voice, in one heart. And so these analogies come together to give us a, a full picture, a house, a building, a body, and now a church of the living God, a temple. This next phrase here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The household of God, which is the church of the living God. Let's take a moment in that phrase. The church of the living God. I want to talk about Ephesus for a moment in this uh, phrase. Because in the city of, of Ephesus, there were lots of temples and lots of gods. And what do we know about those gods? Not only they're false gods, but they're dead. They've always been dead. There's no life in them. Church is a, is, a, is, a, is a modern word for just assembly. When the assembly of the saints come together, they come to a living God, not a dead God. There are temples to Artemis and Zeus and, and all the other pantheon of gods all over Ephesus. But there's only one living God. And there is only one assembly who comes together at that living God. And I want you to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6 here. Now, most of us have heard the phrase about being unequally yoked applied to marriage, and rightly so, but it's actually applied to the church. That phrase, do not be unequally yoked, I think, applies to way more areas than it is often applied. In marriage, I would argue in business, would not get into a partnership with someone who has 
a different view of the world than you do. But notice the context. The context is of a temple. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Bilal? And what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? I think this is speaking, especially in our day, to those who look to the world on how we should order the church. How many pastors I have known who reach for the, the newest self-help book or CEO biography before they, they know more about some secular businessman than they do about the scriptures? Or we look to, what's the world doing? What are they doing to bring people in? What are, what are they doing to build people up? What accord does Christ have with Bilal? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? We are citizens of a different kingdom, and so our kingdom has its own statutes, and that's what we hold to. Verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. There are no other gods. They're made with human hands. They're figments of imagination. We are the temple of the living God. Remember, I, I, I drew this out, this, this um, idea of dwelling God with his people all throughout the scriptures. This is what the people and the church of God represent. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst the world, and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you. Here's our adoption being brought in. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Kent Hughes here says, people indwelt by the living God need the real thing. They need to regularly assemble with fellow temples of the living God. The Sunday gathering is an assembly of the living God. Do you think about that? Every time the church comes together, when we come together, it is an assembly of the living God. The God of the universe is in our presence and has brought us together to dwell with him. This, where God's people dwell, is where he dwells. Because he dwells within us. This is why what we teach is so important. This is why how we order the church is so important. This is why how we defend and manage the church is so important. This church is a living assembly. It is a temple structured in the truth. So now you can see why this, the pillar and buttress language are brought in. Let's, let's talk about these for a moment because these are aspects of temples. You know what a pillar is? It's a column. And a column is a literal thing, you know, stone structure that holds the roof up. But it also symbolizes strength. It symbolizes height. It symbolizes one who stands tall in authority and influence. And every temple, every great temple has many columns. And it holds the roof up. It sustains the structure. So that all who come to worship will see it for miles. Here's what you may not know. 
In Ephesus, there was a temple Artemis, two Artemis. This is one of the seven wonders of the ancient worlds. There were over a hundred, there were a hundred columns that were over 60 feet tall. Imagine that. It was an amazing feat of architecture. You could see it from a great distance, and everyone who came to Ephesus marveled at these pillars, at this grand structure, and everyone would say, great is Artemis. We'll get there in a moment. And so Paul is drawing on a picture of what they saw in their everyday life that was all around them. We'll get to why that's important in a moment. But a church is also a house. And it is a pillar. Each church is a pillar. And each church contains pillars. Look at Revelation chapter 3. Notice the, the promise of the Lord here. When he writes to the church in Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love. Revelation chapter 3, verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. Which comes down from heaven and down from God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear with the church, excuse me, with the Spirit, says to the churches. Notice this beautiful picture. Those who continue to the end, those who have the crown, they are made a pillar that will stand forever in the new city under the new name of the Lamb, our God. The church is a pillar and a buttress. Uh, buttress is just generically a support, a foundation. The pillar goes up and the, the buttress holds it to the ground. The pillar is all the flash and everything that's visible to the world, but your structure is only as strong as its foundation. Buttress in a noun, support or foundation, but an adjective it means to be steadfast. It needs to be firm, not to be moved. It means stability. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Where he says, it's kind of a final exhortation, almost a benediction. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We are this tall pillar that reaches out to the nations. We are a strong foundation that is not to be moved. And this is not of ourselves. We'll get there in a moment. So why bring up Ephesus? Why the pillar and the buttress? Because all temples are, are made to bring attention to their God. They are to bring in worshipers. And the spiritual temple, the church of the living God, is to stand taller and to reach further than any temple of any God who does not live. You see temples everywhere, but you are a city on a hill. 
You are a light to the world because I am in you and in your midst. The church is to be firmly rooted. Its foundation is truth. And we are to stand in splendor for all to see. This is the handiwork of our God. And all this emphasis on the building and the truth is so that the church remains steady, that we are a buttress, that we are unwavering. Because, as Paul is addressing with Timothy, and in our day, there are false doctrines and there are false teachers. And if you do not have a firm foundation, you will get swept away. This church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. If there is no truth, there is no true church. And what is this truth? And I have to define that for some of you. Not your truth. Truth. There's no such thing. There is one truth. If it's a pillar in the buttress of truth, what is the truth? Now we get to verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Now, it's interesting that this phrase is used. Great indeed, this is so hard to translate in the Greek. It's kind of like beyond all question, beyond all comparison. Great like nothing else anywhere is great. Why? Why why must we say that this is great? Remember, we're still in Ephesus. We're still talking about the temple Artemis. Look at Acts 19. When, When Paul causes this disruption in Ephesus, look what they do to defend their city and their temple. And look what they say in its defense. Acts chapter 19 I want to give you some context. We'll begin in verse 26. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that God made with hand, God's made with hands are not God's. Man, what an impactful ministry. All of Asia is turning from false gods that are in fact not God's. And then... Here's when you, when you hit their heart, when you hit their, their pocket. And there is a danger, not only this, and there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. When you call out false gods, you erode false worship. And there is a contrast. If there's only one true and living God, your, can't, your God can't be living and he can't be true. Notice how they respond. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. As I was reading on this this week, this was a daily chant before this temple. People would walk by. They would offer sacrifices And they would chant loud, great is the Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is the Artemis of the Ephesians. Don't believe me? Look at verse 34. But when they were recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they cried out with one voice, great is the Artemis of the Ephesians. That would get really annoying. For two hours. You always know someone doesn't have the truth when they have to shout at you for two hours to get you to listen. This is why Paul, back in 1 Timothy, says, great indeed is the mystery that we confess. 
They claim greatness, but we have what is truly great. This mystery is not something that is readily known. It must be revealed. And it has been revealed to the saints. That's why he wrote them earlier in Ephesians to tell them that the mystery has been revealed to you. And now he's telling these elders and these deacons, teach this mystery, hold to this mystery. Great indeed we confess. We are a confessing people. As Jonathan mentioned earlier, many of you may have grown up in church traditions where you were against any kind of confession or, or a creed and they thought there was some mystical, strange thing going on. We've always been a confessional people. What does it mean to confess? Like I said earlier, to say the same words. Say, I believe in the Bible, that is a confession, that is a creed. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Truly man, truly God, that is a confession. That's why we read things like the Nicene Creed. Why we confess things like we're going to look at here in just a moment. This is why the deacons must hold to this mystery. Because if they can't confess this, they have no business serving in the household of God. So before we go any further, we must ask ourselves, okay, as we talk about this, this building, I think it, oftentimes, pastors especially, think that it is up to them, and I know I've been guilty of this many, many times. What can I do to build the church? What am I doing? This is my house. I think we have to remember who is doing the building and what this building is. I want you to look at Matthew 16 before we go any further. This is going to um, connect our two sections. Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 through 18. Many of you are familiar with this, but I want you to see in the context of what we're looking at. Jesus says to Peter, you know, he asked them earlier, who do others say that I am? But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, the confession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. How foolish would you have to be to say that Peter, Peter is the foundation of your church? It's ridiculous. You've got Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Now we'll take Peter. That's why the Roman Catholic Church is foolish. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Who's building? Whose church? And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is why we connect the two. We are the household of God, a church of the living God. And this, this confession that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, he is the true and living God, that is what builds the church. He builds it. And when he builds it, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Praise God for that. This is the truth that points us to the object of our faith. That Jesus Christ is great. He is greater than all the other gods. In fact, there are no gods. And this is his church. That's what's at stake when we talk about the purpose of the church. And so this church's identity flows from her confession. And so as we get into these lines here in, in 1 Timothy, every one of you needs to know this. Every one of your children needs to know this. I love you, parents, but I'm going to challenge you for just a moment. If your children know 
any fictional entertainment or any characters more than they know these six lines, you should be ashamed of yourself. I want to challenge you this week. Spend some time as a family. There are six of these lines. You can do one every night for the rest of your life talking about who Christ is because this is what Christ is building his church on. This is our identity. This is our confession that drives our conduct. Beginning into chapter, or verse 16, six complementary lines. They all have the same verb form. They're placed into three couplets. So we'll look at these in a moment, but the first two, the next two, and the next two go together. They are, there is parallelism going on here. There is progressive Christology. It is building on the person and work of Christ. It is missional. It looks to him and it looks outward. It is triumphant because he is victorious. And it reads like a hymn in the Greek. And that's why I like that the ESV sets it apart like this because this is essentially how it is, it is written. Each of these lines, there is a single completed thought. It's an all-encompassing act. Each one could be a sermon. Uh, a lot of people ask, like, why don't we do Advent series? And there's nothing wrong with that. We praise God that Christ came in the flesh. There are six lines here. That's one of them. Only mentioned in two Gospels. He's come, and he's risen. Now, he, the Bible has much more to say about his second coming than his first. That is what we will always focus on, because he's coming back. He came. We know that. It's nice and safe to worship a baby in a manger. But a king on a throne is threatening to our own pride. That is who we will preach. Side, sidebar there. Um, the passive voice in these verbs makes Jesus the, su the subject and recipient of all the action. Everything looks to him. He, and so I want to look at the pattern of the nouns before we get to the actions. So uh, I want you to notice here, six lines. The first two go together. And in each of these, the, these, these couplets, you're going to see the intersection between the carnal world and the spiritual world. So the, for, again, this is, this is brilliant and this is complex. And there's a lot of cool diagrams that I read in uh, commentaries, which I'm not going to share with you because it might just confuse you. But the first thing we're going to see in the first two lines, he is revealed to earth by heaven. So we get his incarnation here. He's sent by the Father. He's born of the Spirit. He was manifested in the flesh to earth, vindicated by the Spirit from heaven. Second, so we got revealed in the first two, witnessed in the second two. He's seen by angels and proclaimed among the nations. He's witnessed by hosts from heaven and on earth. All the angels of heaven and all the nations of earth are a witness to him. The last two, he is received on earth and heaven. Believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So you've got the revelation of the Son in the first two. The witness to all creation in the second two. And the reception of his, him being triumphant in the last two. And then you've also got a, a progression in the carnal world. From him being in the flesh to the nations to the world. Sounds like the thesis of Acts, right? There's also a progression in the spiritual world from him in his spirit to all the angels to all who will be in glory 
And so as we look at the, the verbs, the action in these six lines, this is the person and work of Christ in, on display. And this is so simple, even a child can do it. You should know this. You should be able to walk through this. He was manifested in the, in the spirit. Manifested means to be, to be made visible. What was that speaking of? His incarnation. Little baby Jesus in the manger, who didn't stay there, by the way. God took on flesh. Emmanuel. In order to redeem a sinful people, in order to restore what was lost in the fall, God himself took on flesh and he was manifested. You could touch him. They could put their fingers in his side. He ate with them. He slept. He cried. He was truly human. This is amazing. This is our confession. Our God became man for us. He was vindicated by the Spirit. This could also mean justified, uh, not in a forensic or technical sense, but because even if man hated and rejected him, the only vindication he needed was from the Spirit of God. How was he vindicated in the Spirit? He was born of the Spirit. The Spirit was present at his his baptism and inaugurated his, his ministry. The Spirit was present in all of his works and in his preaching. Most importantly, Romans 8 tells us it was the Spirit of God that raised him from the dead. That was his vindication. This truly is the Son of God because not even the grave can hold him. He was vindicated by the Spirit at every step of his ministry. He had a human ministry and a divine ministry simultaneously. He was, now we get to our next couplet. The uh, witness. He's seen by angels. In studious Christianity, a lot of us are probably guilty of this. We kind of dismiss spiritual things. Like uh, Angels are um, underrepresented in kind of the, the academic world. But in the popular Christian world, they're overrepresented. It's like every Lifetime show has an angel at somewhere. Or there's, there's an angel in the outfield and all the other ridiculous things. But when you read the Gospels, when you read Acts, the angels are all throughout it. The heavenly messengers, the witness, the witnessing soldiers are all through the ministry of Christ and all through the work of the apostles. Think about it. They were there as we sung earlier, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, seen by the angels at his birth. They were with him in the wilderness when he was tempted. They were with him in the garden as he sweat drops of blood. They were there at the empty tomb. They were there with the early church in Acts 1. Why are you looking for Jesus Christ? He is gone. He has ascended to the Father. He was seen by the angels and ministered to by the angels in every step of his ministry. Why? Because they've been worshiping him since before time began and will worship him for eternity. You think they're going to leave him when he's here? So don't, don't dismiss angels there to bring glory to Christ, but don't, also, don't minimize them to think that they are your, your kind of personal genies to do your, your bidding. They were here to witness Christ, and they will be witnessing to Christ, to his glory for all of eternity. So he's seen by angels. Here's the, uh, car, the uh, spiritual aspect, and then the, the carnal aspect. He's proclaimed among the nations. This makes this a missional hymn. We are a church 
who is the house of the living God, but the Great Commission calls us to be his witness to all the nations. That the good news that we have, we don't keep to ourselves because it is that good. Peter tells us the angels long to see. Think about it. Angels before the throne of God marvel that you, a sinner, are saved. They marvel. That's why we proclaim this among the nations, because it is amazing. The church is a tall pillar. This temple to the living God who is heralding his good news to all the nations. And so when we get into our last couplet here, here's the result. Believed on in the world. He will be proclaimed until he returns. He will be believed on until he returns. That is the whole purpose for proclamation. We want people to believe. And people will believe because God has promised that there are sheep in this city. I have people here. And as long as we're here, there are still people out there. And so when we think about good news, we think about evangelism, or think about the the things that, that, that you promote during the week. How often do you promote your favorite restaurant or a new movie coming out? What better do we have to offer the world than the God who took on flesh and rose again from the dead? We are the church of the living God. We are a people who have been redeemed from the pit. We are people who, by believing in Jesus Christ, have assurance that we have eternal life in him. He frees people from slavery to sin and death. Because the church is rooted and a God who took on flesh and a God who saves sinners, we can proclaim without fear and without shame. And we call people to believe on him. Why? Because even if the world rejects us like they reject him, we have a promise of glory. Believed on in the world and taken up in glory. This is the ascension. He returns back to where he belongs. He finished his redemptive work, and he is triumphantly seated at the right hand as king and lord of all creation. This is why we stand tall and firm as a temple of the living God. Our God is alive. Our God is in glory right now, and our God has promised glory to us. What do you think man can do to us? When you look through this, notice that Christ is the subject or the content of our faith. He's the object. He's the direction of our faith. We, we, we look to him. And if you have a false view of Christ, you will have a false teaching and your church will be false. That's why your elders must know this and teach this. That's why your deacons must hold to this. Because that's why as members, this is the truth on which we all stand. This is immovable. This cannot be changed. And if you stand on this, if your trust is in him, he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So let me conclude by answering the question that I asked earlier. What is the purpose of the church? Um, There's many ways you can define this. But some version of this, and I'll repeat it for you. The assembly of saints that is built up in the person and work of Jesus Christ to be ministers of his redemption to the glory of the living God. The assembly of the saints 
who are built up in the person and work of Jesus Christ to be ministers of his redemption to the glory of the living God. I'll say that again because I don't want you to forget it. The assembly of the saints who are built up in the person and work of Jesus Christ to be ministers of his redemption to the glory of the living God. To this end, we are entrusted with a great truth that he has entrusted to us. This is why he tells Timothy, guard the great deposit given to you. So practically, what does the church do with this? How do we stand firm in this? How do we hold it up? Um, William Hendrickson, one of my favorite commentators, was really helpful, and he used a great alliteration here. So like, what are we to do in the truth? You, you should write this down. Um, I didn't put it on the screen because I want you to write it down. Four things. We should hear and heed the truth. Hear and heed it. Listen to it and obey it. Take it in and apply it. Hear and heed. Number two, handle it rightly. You should fear and submit to the word of God and be very, very careful how you apply it and how you believe it. Hear it, heed it, handle it rightly. Number three, hide it in your heart. Love it, cherish it, and protect it. When everything in the world seems upside down, you hold on to the word of God because it is hidden, hidden on your heart. It is the, the new covenant that we've been talking, that we talked about earlier, written on our hearts that has changed our hearts. You hear it and heed it, you handle it rightly, you hide it in your heart, and then you hold it forth because it is the word of life. If you hear it and heed it, if you handle it rightly, if you hide it in your heart, you'll have no problem holding it forth for everyone else to see. Uh, I want to close with another quote from John Stott, which I think is a great summary. So coming away from all this, I want you to get the purpose of the church, the truth that we're entrusted, like how do we continue forward, uh, and then just a great piece of encouragement. I want you to see the church like this. And I don't mean just this church. If you move and go to a great church someone else, somewhere else, praise God. But I love what John Stott says here. When we come together as the church of the living God, every aspect of our common life is enriched by the knowledge of his presence in our midst. In our worship, we bow down before the living God. Through the reading and exposition of his word, we hear his voice addressing us. We meet him at his table. He makes himself known to us through the breaking of bread. In our fellowship, we love one another as he has loved us. And our witness becomes bolder and more urgent. Indeed, unbelievers coming in may confess that God is really among you. Brothers and sisters, God is really among you. We are his temple. Let us continue to be a pillar and hold up Jesus Christ that the world may believe on him because we have believed on him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for redeeming wretched sinners like us. Doing what no man could do, taking on flesh and walking among us. The heavenly host declare your glory and we are too often ashamed to speak up. But we praise you that you are merciful to us. We praise you that we heard the gospel. 
and that we believe because your spirit brought us to new life. We look forward to the day when we will see you face to face in glory. But until then, Lord, may your church be faithful. May your church be steadfast, not just this church, but every church that is gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and believes on him. If they are following false doctrines, Lord, make them miserable in it. Drive them away from the wickedness of man-centered salvation and man-exalted teaching. Remove false teachers from, from pulpits. But to the faithful churches, grant them endurance. Grant them purity. Grant them unity. Grant them joy in their salvation. And continue to raise up faithful ministers of the gospel and faithful members of churches who love one another and serve one another because they know that they are the household of God, a church of the living God. It is in the name of our triune God that we pray. Amen.